FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me today in the studio again is Dr. Mark Donohoe, a man who I have much regard for and who has given much of his career to the profession of medicine, specialising in integrative medicine. So welcome back, Mark. Again, a pleasure to be back. There's nothing better than being in this podcast, (laughs) you know. Mark, in our last podcast, we spoke about Epstein-Barr virus, EBV, and the issues surrounding why, why we have it, what the symptomatology is, why it tends to affect many people in that sort of teenage, late teenage years, in those teen, late teenage years. Today we're going to be covering some management techniques that we can use. Mm. Given that, you know, you can't kill that virus, it's with you, correct? That's true. We die with much more DNA than we are born with, and that's one of the funny things in life that... These viruses get in, they stay, we carry them, and for most of us, there's no issue. But for some people, when the virus starts replicating, we set off immune responses, we treat it as an enemy, and it is it becomes our enemy lifelong. So, yes, you don't kill it, but 95% of the world manages it perfectly happily, and a small percentage does not, and it's that percentage that we see in our practices. Okay, can I just go back then to our first podcast where you mentioned about Epstein-Barr virus being incorporated into the DNA. So it's not with us when we're born, but gets incorporated later. Yes. So there is a long story of successful viruses that did make it into the germline. So we have somatic cells and we have the germline cells. And when an ovum is made, it's made at the conception or not long after the conception of the previous generation. So part of that is the the cell goes into a metaphase. It is non-active as an egg and it's pretty resistant to any viral invasion. It's not metabolically turning over. So every generation, the package of the DNA and the, and the uh, somatic cell lines are, ch- are changed, but the germline generally doesn't change. Now, Epstein-Barr is a retrovirus or a, a herpes virus that has not yet made it into our germline of DNA. Its DNA is not in what goes from generation to generation. So it's still at the point right now where it is infecting. It can infect as early as, you know, the first weeks or months of life in third world countries where malnutrition, overcrowding, where everybody is teeming with it. You do see in Africa that all the babies, the two-year-olds, have had Epstein-Barr virus. And Ah. we think that is why they are so prone to getting lymphoma. Remember last time we talked, it gets into naive B cells. Babies are loaded with naive B cells. They haven't fought most of their fights. So when the virus gets in, it infects a whole lot of their immune cells 
And as those immune cells get more and more battles to fight, which you definitely do in overcrowded cities, some of them just go off the chart and they start to produce lymphoma. And we have this thing called Burkitt's lymphoma, which is a relatively common outcome if you get the virus early and enough B cells are invaded so that Epstein-Barr makes some of them immortal. Okay, transfer that to somewhere like New York, Tokyo, where you've got an incredible density of population. Do we see Burkitt's lymphoma? We still see it intermittently, but even in the most crowded cities of first world countries, mm. there is still a point where salivary transfer with the intimacy growing up with you know many, many people sick and coughing the whole time just doesn't occur in the same way. Now, the future may be that we go back to that and that we all become susceptible. And this is probably why the National Institute of Health in America has said, okay, we recognize EBV as an oncovirus. We're putting massive resources together to look at drugs that are able to inhibit Epstein-Barr virus. You get to understand humans' um, intention and what's important to us. Genital herpes got its drugs really early because what we like is to not have genital herpes mm. and pass it on. Mm -hmm. And people have been on uh, Valtrex, which is valaciclovir, for many, many, many years in order to keep their genitals clear so that they can continue to have sex in various ways. We're not so fond of Epstein-Barr virus because we've always thought of it in the first world as, oh, that's an annoying infection that you get when you're a teenager yeah. and first start kissing. Right. But after that, what the hell? But you blow know? the third world. Yeah. Mm. And so the focus on third world was simply Burkitt's lymphoma in Africa and nasopharyngeal carcinoma throughout Asia. Mm. And so now that we're aware that there, there are high associations of that virus getting into B cells and causing the lymphomas, then we're going to develop drugs. And, and bluntly, it's way overdue that we need those drugs because there are people who can die of the consequences. We doctors sit here thinking, I really wish they get a really good antiviral drug for Epstein-Barr because if you could inhibit it or maybe knock it out, that would be a boon for us who are dealing yeah. with people with chronic diseases. But it's all over the other side of the horizon now, and we can't afford to wait for that. We've got to take action now as practitioners. We've got to know the life cycle of the Epstein-Barr, which is what we talked about before, how it gets in. It's largely salivary contact. And between age 15 and 25, we go from 5% roughly who have got evidence of Epstein-Barr to 95 that also leads to a misinterpretation. Many doctors will say, oh, yeah, everybody gets Epstein-Barr. 95% of the population has those antibodies. It's not whether you have the antibodies. Antibodies are meant to stay with you lifelong, and that's a good sign. But what ha does happen is that antibodies called early antigen antibodies and sometimes immunoglobulin M, which is an acute reactant, mm peak up again and you get to see this virus poking yeah. its head out over and over and you get to see the immune system, the lymphocytes, starting to react to that virus. What we're looking at for the, many of these chronic fatigue syndrome, chronic viral infections, lymph nodes, sore throat, and it comes back over and over, is a virus that has never really been tamed. It is there, it's wild, and when the person's health goes downhill for another reason, the virus replicates. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the big understanding. The gain from the 1980s when we said chronic fatigue syndrome equals chronic Epstein-Barr virus. I don't think we think that anymore. I think what we think is host comes along with a number of potential areas of problems, allergy, methylation issues, um, genetics that respond adversely to wheat. They carry these things. The virus gets in in the normal course of events and sits there and waits. 
and it's like an assassin. It will wait there 30 years. People had their glandular fever when they were 15. At 40, 50, and 60, this virus suddenly takes off, but it takes off for other reasons. And it's those other reasons that we practitioners in the early stages thought, oh, it's glandular fever, let's kill it. Mm. And I did this as much as anyone. You know, we went with intravenous vitamin C, let's murder this virus. We took the wrong approach because the virus was the barometer. It was the signal that something else was wrong that we had missed. And I think now the place of Epstein-Barr is it gets in. And when it's active, you've got to look elsewhere. You've got to think of why it's active, not whether it's Epstein-Barr. So just a couple of questions I've got then about, you know, you mentioned methylation, the the wheat and the things DQ like that. DQ genetics. DQ, yeah, and, things like yeah. that. But they're with you all the time. Then they They're unwavering. Where... Um, I guess my analogy here is, let's say the herpes virus, you know, you get sunburned, eat peanuts, get stressed, um, take some um, arginine and bang, you've got an infection, an mm-hmm. active infection. Um, get sunburned. That was the other one, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, um, um, and stress. Yeah. Whereas the virus is latent for most of the other time. It's it's not a, a an active sort of infection. It's not causing symptoms. Similarly, with EBV, there's something that must cause it to awaken because yeah. your methylation's there all the time. Your DQ genetics are there all the time. If they're eating wheat, that's there most of the time, if not. So there's some other antecedent to, to an episode. Is that the umbrella of all diseases of the 21st century, which is stress? Um, stress in the sense of Hans Selye? The answer is yes, because mm, right. <laughs> stress is what so the body is stressed by. stress response, right? right. So you, if you reverse that idea of stress, what what happens a lot is doctors will say, oh, you're just stressed, which, uh, duh, mm. yes, yep. <laughs> but stressed by what? Stressed how? Well, how does a person who is in apparently very good health suddenly decompensate Yes, they go downhill. And after you're sick for long enough, you are stressed by just about anything. And so stress does occur in the psychological sense. But what we look for in the antecedents, say six months prior to the onset of the illness, is what exactly was going on there. The other thing I'd say about those methylation DQs, all of those, they are like trapdoors. If they never open, you don't even know that they were there. The only reason that we're paying attention to them now is we can now put a name on them. We can now do a test for them. And we can say, these are the things that are lined up. A person yesterday in my practice lined up with hemochromatosis genes. For a woman who's menstruating, that's not a terrible thing, but high iron Mm. puts fuel on the fire. Mm. And she has a very high iron. Doctors keep saying, oh, great, you've got high iron. Not good. If you've got hemochromatosis, that iron is like kerosene on Mm. a fire. That's right. She had a methylation, homocysteine high, not by itself a disease for a young woman. You know, men should be worried about it because they tend to die of heart attacks. But for her, enough little trapdoors opened up in a row that there was no safe spot for right, her. Right. And when she tumbles down, she tumbles down not to deathly outcomes, but she tumbles down in a way that the body says, whoop, put you into hibernation. The least worst thing we can do here is slow everything down. So chronic fatigue syndrome has got some good research lately that what humans enter in CFS is not a disease state. It's much more similar to hibernation. It's where the body says the sum total of those stresses put you back to sleep. Yeah. Let's get yeah. through this winter. Yeah. And at the other end, somehow you'll be through it. We'll turn on yeah. all of those thermostats all over again. And what I'm saying is, when that thermostat effect happens, Epstein-Barr is just one of those opportunists that will take advantage of it. I've got to say, uh, 
I love the way that you say that about that hibernating response, you know, what, what we would term the sickness response. You know, yes. I'm sick, go away, leave me alone so that I can lick my wounds and heal. Um, however, the pressures of the 21st century come along and you have to work, you have to perform, you have to do your homework, and that's why they fall. Um, so it, it seems to be this decompensated stress response, something that fills up the glass to overflowing. And I yes. guess this is where I'm catching myself. You might have your DQ genetics, your... Um, methylation, methylation issues, all of those sort of things, a, a little swig, a little, a little top up of the glass, and then something overflows yeah. that glass and you get the symptoms. You so can... again, we go back to the stress. If we're talking about, you know, the high school students that fall in a heap, sure. you've got the hormone surges and you've got the stresses of interpersonal relationships, exams, kissing, self-esteem, all of that, all of those sort of issues presenting to adolescence and bang. Yeah. Is that what happens, i.e., do you see them recover or indeed do you not see a florid infection? And this is a weird sort of thing. Why would they come and see you? But has anybody looked at this that, that you know, they might be infected but they don't have the tiredness, the glands and things like that because they have an intact self-esteem, they're mm. not having relationships, they're fine with their exams? Yeah, I mean, there's two different things there. One is the opportunity for the, Ill, for the infectious agent. Mm. Infection does not equal illness, mm. right? One thing that I should be clear about is pretty well everyone who gets acute glandular fever feels terrible mm. and they feel terrible usually for weeks. The glands come up, the pharynx is sore, mm. One of the worst things doctors have done is give people amoxicillin or various variations of an antibiotic for it because there is something very definite about that story resulting in a much, much worse outcome. And I suspect what it does is most of the antibiotics, including amoxicillin, are immunosuppressive. What you don't want with an acute virus is to give an immunosuppressive agent that's utterly useless <coughs> against the virus and allows the virus to get to places that it would not have otherwise got. When you're saying immunosuppressive, how? Well, all of the antibiotics act as immunosuppressant agents. That just is one of the natures of them. And what we what we rely on as doctors, in fact, erythromycin 30 years ago advertised itself as the least immunosuppressive of all the antibiotics. Oh, really? so, yes, it was in our medical journals. It was pulled out after a year or two. It's not a great idea to say that. But in fact, truthfully, a lot of the Lyme disease treatment, the thinking about why the antibiotics may work is powerful immunosuppressants when you've got an overactive immune system. You may not be killing any bug. You may just be suppressing immunology in a way not dissimilar to what we do with steroids. You can always make a, first, a person feel better with vitamin P, which was prednisone, mm, mm. you can make it feel better, but is it good for the no, person? And right. the argument's probably not. Yeah. So every antibiotic has an immunosuppressant effect. Amoxicillin in people with Epstein-Barr virus is a very particular thing that when it's given, the person, it tends to almost um, ossify that virus. It gets a head start in a way that makes it very resilient future, in the future and down the line. The number of people in the high school certificate here in New South Wales who get this is very high, and the vast majority recover well enough to do the exams. I get to see the ones that don't. And so you do mix all of these things. The ones that don't get out of it tend to be the poor methylators, the DQ, the, the ones that carry the genetics so that inflammation is perpetuated, goes on and on. People who've had a lot of tonsillitis and antibiotics, distorted microbiome or microbiota of the gut, <laughs> that is not helpful. If you have a pro-inflammatory yeah. gut, what you don't need is more, even more kerosene on that fire. That gives us ideas about what we should do to 
come to some agreement, detente with the virus. It's not that we go and kill the virus. There is some research that says Valgan Ciclavir, uh, a guy called Montoya over in the United States did this, of treating CFS who had high Epstein-Barr early antigen titers, treating them with valaciclovir, and it was very successful. Then? Well, then. <laughs> what about right? later? Well, we don't know later, but at least at the, you know, the three-month mark after that, okay. there have been significant gains over the placebo. So what he demonstrated was that if you have high early antigen antibodies, which means the body is still fighting it, whether the virus is very active or not, the body's fight is still there, and human herpes 6, he'd combined the two of those and said, if you're positive for both, we'll go with the antiviral, and it worked. Is that practical? No. Mm -hmm. You know, Valgansiclovir is $3,000 a month uh, for the oral version of it here, and it is only marginally effective orally. So we do tend on the extremes as doctors to use the closest available drug. Valaciclovir is a close relative to it. It's used for, you know, cold sores and uh, varicella, which is chickenpox. We tend to use it to inhibit herpes viruses, but it's very weakly effective against Epstein-Barr virus. Why would we use it? Sometimes the person's almost there, like they're almost getting better. And you can know that if the virus could just be held back a little, then that would be of advantage to that person. And then they get over it themselves, they pack it away in jail, it's back in the cells, and as long as it's inside the cells and quiet, we're fine. So going back to what you mentioned earlier about the National Institutes of Health, they're looking at it. Are yeah. they looking at things like, you know, um, twins, one presenting with EBV, one without? Or, uh, you know, what sort of investigations no. are being done? The, the work there stage. is, since it's an oncovirus, it's a very blunt stick. What they're after is what kills or inhibits a virus. Yeah. Now, kills is a funny word with a virus because it's in the line. It's a piece of DNA wrapped up in a protein coat and it's called bad news in a protein coat. Mm -hmm. So you don't kill it, but what you do is you can stop it replicating, get it back into a non-functional state within the cells and the person's symptoms disappear. And this so, is the reverse transcriptase? Uh, well, it is. Herpes viruses in this case is not reverse transcriptase because it forms its own DNA ring within the nucleus, but it is not copying itself into our DNA. Right. So the difference and the reason why these herpes virus drugs don't work as well is that other viruses try and copy themselves in the DNA and we have techniques of stopping the re-replication of those viruses. This one's got a particular trick. It's circular DNA outside the nor outside our normal DNA, but within the nucleus, and it carries over, it replicates along with us. So there are technical difficulties, but once you put Americans on the job of finding an answer to something with billions of dollars mm. at the other end of it, they tend to get a good outcome. They'll create a hammer. Yes, they, they will create a hammer, and that hammer will occasionally be useful. And so we are all standing back saying, look, do a good job if we had a good drug so that in the end, when we've got all the other trapdoors closed, and we've done the diet, and we've done the methylation, and we've done everything else, we sit there for a lot of people say, why will you not get better? And the answer is often, the virus is just on top of them. It's been so used to winning the battles mm. that it still replicates. And if we had something that could just switch it off for a while, that would be great. I think the really interesting areas are going to be searching the herbal kind of pharmacopoeia, mm. going back over the things that we've looked at. We've got, you know, star anise for our antivirals when it comes to the flu. There are things clearly in the environment that have had some relationship with Epstein-Barr over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. Mm -hmm. And so when you're looking for the enemy of my enemy, you tend to look at the herbal side of life, say, what is it that humans ingested that probably did the job? 
And I hope that what we'll be doing for the first time is not coming out with a multi-trillion dollar drug that no one can afford, but a concept of how do we inhibit this? How do we tell the virus, your time is up, you know, you are finished, go back into your shell, stay with me to the end of your days, that's all very well, but just don't come out again. And this is a very important point because... You know, drugs, as as we mentioned before, is tends to be a hammer, yes. which unfortunately will cause pain outside that that uh, area that it hits, whether it be now or later. My question is, if ninety five percent of the population odd is infected with it, and ninety five percent of the population doesn't have necessarily issues, only a small percentage of yes. that goes on to have issues, then shouldn't we be looking at the other things that cause? the raise in, cause it to raise its ugly head and manifest in diseases. Ban the higher school certificate. Like <laughs> there, there are times in life of high vulnerability, the stress of the Ban final kissing. year. No, the final year at school, <laughs> you want to have kissing or higher school certificate, not both, not both. in the same Wonder year. Wonder which one, the two, anyway. Yeah. Um, it is called the kissing disease for a reason. I mean, that is what happens between 15 and 25. Yeah. It's not simply kissing. You know, at least half of the people who show evidence of Epstein-Barr antibodies don't recall having glandular fever. And it's not a question of how severe was your glandular fever. Although you can pick the problem, the person who gets terrible glandular fever halfway through year 12 can't sit the exams because it's gone on for six months. That's nearly always the bad news. The prognostic signs there are pretty poor. The person who gets a quick infection early in the year and is back in study six weeks later is usually a good sign. So forgive me, are you saying that the person who gets sick at high school is at higher risk of developing a more sinister presentation later on in life? uh, I may have misrepresented that. That is, I think if you ask any doctor around the place, we all know the HSC is a risk factor for glandular fever. And that when a person is sick late in the year, as the pressure rises, the stresses rise as that year goes on, That is a very important reason why some people just cannot recover because the demands are going up at the very time that their body's failing under them. Right, resulting in a chronic fatigue type picture. And so once, once you have been stressed like that for a fair period of time, the outcomes are much, much harder to get on top of. Is there any correlation between being sicker with EBV in the high school years and a more dire presentation later on? That's a good, really good question. In, in history taking, the answer is yeah, that's a clear thing. However, when we're told that you go back over epidemiology, that severity of illness has nothing to do with it, some of my most severe, severely ill Epstein-Barr patients with the IgM chronically positive nodes up in the throat sore don't even remember the first infection. Right, okay. It, it passed off as a bit of a cold or something that they say, oh, I might have, but they can't uh, point it. So we it's something did divide, to do with the terrain now. Yeah, we, we in our research at Newcastle Uni, we divided off two groups, the slow onset, which was really ill-defined onset, and the very known onset, the rapid. The classic story of the rapid is age 18, 17, 16, sudden glandular fever, never well from that date on. The other ones are, yeah, I had glandular fever, but I was fine for 10 years afterwards. And then when I got into work and I was doing my kind of in the finance industry and I was doing drugs, staying up late and a lot of alcohol, so why would it come back then? And the answer is, well, that's a host response. That is, you found the weak spot, you've opened it up, and that little virus that sits there just waiting for you is your barometer. If you don't pay attention, a lot of people, and here's a fascinating thing for, you know, kind of takeover from my practice is when people get better, they get to figure out what the problems are further on in life. As soon as they feel the throat going sore and the nodes coming up, even the littlest bit, they back off. 
and they keep themselves well that way. So the weirdest thing about Epstein-Barr is it may actually, once you have recovered from the acute illness or once you're aware of it, it may even act as a bit of a barometer. When have I gone too far? When those things start playing up, there is an edge not too far away. And if you pay attention at that point, you've still got the opportunity for recovery. If you go over that edge, it's an entirely different world. Once the virus is out of control, you tend to de-escalate. Your health just goes downhill so rapidly. I related to this thing. You can tumble down to the edge of a cliff and you're injured, but not too bad. Mm. But you go over the cliff, you are going to know the difference between getting sick and falling ill in a way that is unrecoverable at that time. So looking at, you know, medical management is just rest, um, antipyretics and and fluids, basically, apart from those viruses that have, that respond to the... um, Oh, I think think it's different than that. I think it's different than that. Rest is one of the problematic areas. So there is something about going to bed and becoming, you know, becoming fearful of life, that's not a good thing. Right Now, I'm not going back. There was a PACE trial done in in the UK years ago, and it has been discredited now, but it was a multi-million pound trial to say everybody just needs cognitive behavioral therapy and exercise. And a a few lovely one of our professors say, our hospital does only the evidence-based stuff. Now that the trial's been discredited, what do you do? Do you Mm. disband all of that? Or do you say, well, maybe there's something But the evidence is that you stay active to the capacity. How do you know what your capacity is? If you do something and the next morning you wake up tired, that's too too far. And so this this thing of 60% of your self-assessed maximum, that means nothing. But if you say to a person, you can do what you do that you love, but if the next morning you're suffering for it, you did too much, just revise your kind of standards about what you can do. Stay below that threshold so that nighttime sleep is recovery. One very good method of management is usually do something to enhance sleep quality. Get the room dark, get the devices out of the room. Sleep has a deeply healing capacity and it is eight or nine hours that you can get an advantage over a virus simply by deep restful sleep. What about things like blue light, um, indeed light therapy, blue light and melatonin? Yeah, getting getting their circadian rhythm back is often a really big issue because people say, there's no difference between morning and evening. You know, I'm awake all night and tired all day. And they don't have their uh, circadian rhythm. And so in those people, you do see very flat cortisol curves. You see the morning cortisol and the afternoon cortisol not different from each other. The body clock has lost its way. And so I do go back to the basics, though. You need a dark room at night and you need to sleep and you need to get up and hit the sunlight and have the kind of stimulus go. And when that doesn't work easily, melatonin is a terrific way of getting that back. Mindfulness and meditation. Some people hate it. Kids like 18-year-olds telling 18-year-olds to do that. It seems to them like a waste of time. They want the treatment and the miracle. Um, But if you can get them to do that, that's important. Most people I put on stewed apple. This may surprise you, Andrew. Uh, You you probably have never heard this before, (laughs) but a surprising number of people, you've got to work on their gut, even teenagers. And you would think, how how much opportunity have they had for a foul-up? Most of the teenagers that I see with this history have had a lot of antibiotics because they've had a lot of infections beforehand. And doing something to the gut, making sure that the diet is matching them and making sure that they're not reacting adversely to foods and getting the microbes settled again, that's more art than science these days. For those people who are just listening in for the first time to FX Medicine, um, Dr. Mark Donahoe and I have a bit of a common thread with a few subjects. Mark's is stewed apple mind is mentioning certain bacteria. So I guess that all of we've mentioned here is supporting the host so that the virus can go back into a dormancy. 
and the host as well. Um, what other things do you do to support the host? Do you incorporate nutritionals? Well, I mean, you mentioned before IV vitamin C about killing it. And, you know, I wonder whether it does kill it. I, look, it does. What, one thing that I was clear about is when I first took on vitamin C back in the 80s, I had done everything that I could think of for most patients, allergy management, all the nutritional work. They got their diets right. They had done their stress management. And there were still a lot of people who were unwell with a classic sore throat, lymph nodes up. And I, you know, talked with Ian Brighthope. We kind of organized a clinic. And for 30 or so people, we did the intravenous vitamin C and it was like bloody magic. And these people got better. They were back at work. They were saying, why didn't anyone do that? So but did I, the teeters go down? Uh, that was a time that we didn't have the early antigen teeters. Right. So this was the mid-80s, 83, 84, 85. Yeah. These, the teeters became available in the early 90s. So they got look, better, but is it because it yeah. killed the virus or just well, support we don't the host? Know. But what happened was <laughs> I started thinking, oh, the whole magic is in the vitamin C. So mm. we set up a big clinic. And when people came in and had vitamin C by itself, it was indistinguishable from nothing. Right. And so I be, it became clear to me that attacking the virus was only the last stage, which is why I'm thinking antiviral drugs may eventually have their place as the end stage uh, yeah, of right. those people who have not already got better. Yeah. What I'd missed is the 75 or 80% of people who got better were not coming back to see me. It was only the ones where the last anchor had not been pulled up. Right. And all we needed was something that sledged the vitamin C, that beat it on the head, put it back in its cage. And that was the final step for those people, not the first step. So as a, I hate this word, I'm going to say guidelines. So I won't say protocol because yeah. protocol implies that it's all researched. Yes. As a guideline for therapy, can you go through, say, the basic, say, five, ten A's that you would always uh, incorporate? I can try. The things that I would think are we've got to find out what the trapdoors are for a person. So I don't think that there is one regimen for all. In fact, I'm, I'm convinced about that, that the first step is find out what their weak spots are. See if you can uncover a few of them and take action against it. For some, that's a diet. For some people, it's getting them off a damn diet. So a lot of people go on highly restrictive diets. The thing that's holding them up is they're mm. no longer properly nourished. Yeah getting people out into sunlight in the morning and getting them to sleep at night. There are basic things that you could say, what about sleep? What about exercise? Exercise yes. and movement is critically important to having a vigorous immune response. Mm. And we know that now from so many studies. What's the very thing that these chronic fatigue syndromes drag away from a person? Their ability to exercise. So even motion, yoga, moving the body, tai chi, um, qigong, these are things which allow the body to kind of replicate a feeling of normality again. I, I th Forgive me for interrupting, but I think you just hit on something that really interests me, and that is uh, linking into the blue zones, those people with excessive longevity. Yes. And all of them move. None of them exercise. Right. They don't go to gyms. Right. They move. And it's a really interesting thing because exercise tends to be this thing about doing it to your limitation. Yes. Whereas movement is just daily activity. What you do in the course of your daily life. Yeah. And we, we've been very good at constructing an environment in which all of the mod cons mean that we hardly do mm. anything. We don't even walk to the TV anymore. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, we that's watch right. it on our screen that we carry with us. So I do understand that. One, one thing that is almost universal is getting people out of supermarket shopping. Supermarkets have no seasons. Getting people back onto something that is replicating the food of their ancestors. And that means going back three or four generations. 
doing gardening, doing cooking. The trick, the, the MacGuffin for my uh, stewed apple is people go back to the kitchen and they start actually interacting with food, yeah. putting things together, creating food. That's living food for them. That living food is an important part of ongoing health. So it is, there's no magic answer. I think what we could say is each individual brings their own little trapdoors and it's our job as practitioners to know what we can about those. We will know a hundred times more as the genomes and the SNPs and everything get you know, pushed into computer processing. We'll be a much cleverer, but we may not be much better at understanding what's important for a single person to do. The reason I have two-hour consultations is that the person almost universally will tell me what the answer is because if you listen long enough, they already know the answer. It just they take a little time to get it out. And in a 10 or 15-minute consultation, there is no room for that. There's only room for here's my problems, the doctor saying here's my solutions. But a long history, the person will tell you of the family stresses, what they went through as a kid. They'll tell you of the recurrent infections, the middle ear infections, the, you know, the fact that they may be IgA deficient. Those things come out in a prolonged story. And in an hour or two, the average person gives me an answer about what I know is going to be their final recovery. And what I have to do is join the dots. I see the little bits that are broken along the way. Yes, we can fix methylation. Yes, we can do something about your hemochromatosis. We can do things individually. And as we draw towards recovery, the final step is going to be the thing that they talked to me about at the beginning. Now, I think at that point, you often do have value in psychologists, talk therapy, and things that address those parts of the history way back, sexual abuse and trauma in early life. And there is a value in this kind of management of post-traumatic stress that the body is under a perpetual stress over all those years before, but it's the final step of recovery. The resolution of what was in the past can't be your first step. What you do is take the person who's recovering their health, getting there, and say, how do we put the little patches on all the other broken bits and not let this happen again? And I think that there is value to it, but if we say it's either in the mind or the body, and I saw another letter from another doctor saying... I disagree, chronic fatigue syndrome is just a mental illness. Mm. Um, that really upsets me when I see what but those there are still people think. that believe that the earth is flat. I know, I know. And, and doctors who do that tend to not have to go through the whole process of two-hour consultations and listen to it. They're ready to fix the broken bones, the cuts and scratches, and I think there's a place for that in medicine. I, I just wish they'd stick to that. Yeah, <laughs> that's possibly true. But the, look, if we think of Epstein-Barr virus, as an invader that takes an opportunity, that finds the weak spots, in evolutionary terms, its favourite hosts are going to be those that are poorly defended in a particular area, and our job as practitioners to find the undefended areas and defend them. And once those defences are in place, once we've done the, what we need to do with diet and lifestyle, sleep, once we've done what we need to do with our herbs and supplements to fix, the, say, pyroluria or methylation or any of those, when we think that we've got the job done... What do we do for that final step? And I think maybe in the future, the antiviral drugs will play a part for the extreme cases. I'm hoping that what that area that I don't know called herbalism that I plan to do in my future, I'm hoping that that is really the answer for what happens with those viruses way before we get to the heavy drugs. And then the idea of finally pulling your life together, this is what my patients do. The miracle for me is they have this severe illness. As they recover from it and learn their path and their story, so many of my patients become practitioners. 
and they want to go out and say, okay, I've discovered a path to healing for myself, and they go and do a nature care or another kind of course, and they become practitioners, and they spread that knowledge onto others. Women do this way more often than men. Men go back to work, have their heart attack, and feel very justified about it. But I am encouraged that there's a kind of generation emerging of young women who are taking this message on and have a more holistic understanding of health than we were ever given as doctors. Three quick questions. <laughs> they all come from that last answer. Firstly, you mentioned women yes. more than men with regards to EBV. Yeah. Is that because of raging hormones? Second, so second question is how, how much money, and I'm going to be sort of cynical against this, how much money do you waste on screening for, say, you know, methylation issues and, you know, your DQ genetics and all of that sort of thing? Or do you ask targeted questions that might pique you to to an issue there? Like, you know, do are you the person that, you know, can't put off tomorrow what can be done today and therefore you might be that quote unquote chronic fatigue personality. Um, do we ask certain targeted questions before investing in either useful or wasteful testing? And the third one is what sort of nutriments do you use as general sort of therapy? Okay. First one's easy. Women are born with more powerful immune systems than men. Epstein-Barr virus is not just an issue of immunology, it's an over-aggressive response. And so it is very difficult to um, separate these kind of viral infections from a type of autoimmunity. So first one is women get it more than men, I believe, because their immunology is more powerful. They have a more active response and so the cytokine response is clearly higher. The second one of targeted questioning, yes, that's the job of a clinician. You are absolutely right. I am strongly in disagreement with broad screening. But after an hour or two with a person, you know the things. Those who had lots of infections in childhood, are they Lewis non-secretors? Are they IgA deficient? What's the problem? Lewis non-secretors? Lewis non-secretors. It's a part of the ABH or like the ABO blood system. There's but you'd only find system. that from a test. Yeah, you do find that from a test. There's a thing called a Lewis phenotype. And so... A high proportion, half of my patients roughly are Lewis non-secretors. Any questions that could pique well, you yeah, to a potential yeah. Recurrent middle ear infections, right. recurrent tonsillitis of childhood, failure to respond to antibiotics and getting grommets. So those people typically are gotcha. the Lewis non-secretors. Right. They lack an adhesion factor in the, uh, an anti-adhesion factor in their mucus secretions. They're called non-secretors. They secrete plenty, but they lack the anti-adhesion factors and the bugs stay there in low numbers, again, waiting like assassins right. for the time you're low. Yeah. And they are the ones that, you know, the GP gives antibiotics, they get a bit better, then the same infection back and back and the recurrent antibiotics. The problem with being a Lewis non-secretor is they get so many antibiotics that what's left is resistant pathogens mm. and non-resistant gastrointestinal flora. I hate it when every answer you give peaks about five questions in my mind. Well, but one anyway, day we have going. to finish our story here. <laughs> and so... Those targeted questions, the point of that history is to say, where are the vulnerabilities? Do you give me signs from the past? And that, you know, that we aggregate over time. And you test for the high likelihoods. Now, so the best thing I say to people is, I have like four theories here. Mm. Three of them are going to be wrong, but I don't know which ones are wrong. Right. But the testing can prove me wrong. It's not testing proving you right. It's that if I think you're a Lewis non-secretor and you're not, then I've got a bigger question of where did all those yeah. infections come from? Yeah. Yeah. If you're a Lewis non-secretor, 
that provides a reasonable answer and we then have to get on with the job of recovery. So I absolutely do the targeted stuff. In fact, Medicare beat me over the head long and hard saying, you are doing screening tests. And I say, no, my history leads me to the questions. I just take a longer history so I have more questions to be answered. And then the final one of supplements is very, very difficult to answer generically. I go for probiotics, stewed apple, I go for the gut for everybody and just say, give it a try and see what happens. And what's been surprising in this last year and a half is how many people come back and say, I'm a bit better. How's your gut? Oh, it's fine. Now, it used to be in the past. What I would say is, how are you? Oh, my gut is still terrible. And the gut was always the last thing. I I just thought it was an impossible thing to get help. So I'm more comfortable now with the gut being something that if we can induce it back to a normal symbiosis in there, that people get better in the gut. That doesn't always make them better. So what we do then is take each individual thing and say, what can we do most simply for this one? What can we do most simply for this one? And we just put those pieces together and watch to see what recovery is like. And the final, so that final question of what do I give? I give almost everyone magnesium because neuromuscular problems, psychological problems, difficulty relaxing in bed, the high hit rate of magnesium is if you get enough in, most people feel dramatically better. The other thing that it does very well with is people who have what they appears to be anxiety and palpitations palpitations disappear. So all you've really got to do is get the magnesium in in reasonable amounts. Some people are sodium and potassium deficient, which means they've got low fluid volume and their blood pressure can't stay up and they have what's called orthostatic intolerance or POTS, which is uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Those people need a special response. You up the salt, you up the potassium, you give them back their electrolytes and then you have a look at why they're dropping their blood pressure so precipitously. So every Everything that I do in the practice has particular reasons for being done. But I would say manage the gut, try the magnesium, use things which support normal immunology. And again, I go mainly for things down in the gut when I do that. A lot of people need pain relief, and that's one of the weak points of my practice because I need to know things that are better for pain. I put them on to meditation, mindfulness. It's really difficult to break pain Mm. by being meditating and mindful. Mm. I know this from a personal experience. I am mindful of my pain. Yes, yes, and and letting it pass is very difficult. So if I had my next rather, I, I think I've got a better handle on the gut, it would be what can I do for the pain that these people experience? The magnesium helps it helps muscle spasm and the kind of um, twitchy nervous system much more than anything else. So pain relief is still an area that I'm dubious about. I, I know that the drugs that I use should not be used long term. What about breathing and acupuncture? Yeah. And so I, I think that acupuncture is one of my favorite things that I do from the alternative side. When I see adrenals low, when I see blood pressure low, when I see those things, what I used to do was send people to acupuncture and say, your adrenals are low, they'll fix your adrenals. Of course, the acupuncturist would look at me and say, it's liver spleen, it is lung liver, it is something else. And I'm referring them for what I in Western medicine think of the adrenals and they feel the pulse and call it something else. So mm. we called it different names. Mm. I got into arguments saying, no, it's really adrenals. They say, no, it's chi, it's yeah, liver. Yeah, yeah. And the truth is, you go to the acupuncturist, they do their acupuncture if they're well-trained, they run on the pulses, and people's recovery is very, very good in those areas of what I regard as adrenal support. What I think is interesting is uh, I remember reading about that, that they looked at acupuncture and sham acupuncture, and they mm. were trying to discern how did acupuncture work, and it doesn't work like Narcan. It doesn't work like an anti-opiate. Yeah. It works on a different system. Yes. So. 
particularly for those people that aren't responding to opiates or indeed if it have an issue with addiction with opiates. Yes. Acupuncture can be something where their pain may be managed. And yeah. I think it deserves, certainly deserves um, investigation. You, you run a, a separate issue in there. One thing we failed to ever garner gather together and use is a placebo-effective medicine. Yeah. We think of it as the thing to be avoided. Mm -hmm. The placebo is what every doctor does every day, yeah. every good doctor does every day, and every specialist thinks is to be avoided because they do real science. Yeah. <laughs> and humans have been responding to placebos forever, yeah. right? If you believe you are getting better and you are doing something that aids in those areas, then the recovery is better. I... I find placebos hard just ethically when it comes to pain relief because giving something which is known not to be helpful is something that I am bothered about. Mm. One thing I will land here is there is now evidence FDA in America identified it, NIH has identified it, low-dose naltrexone. It's a drug that is used for breaking addictive responses to heroin and to other uh, narcotics. Yep. At around about one-tenth to one-twentieth of the usual dose, it has a pain-altering effect which is very, very powerful. And for probably more than half of my fibromyalgia people, maybe as high as three quarters, it's a non-addictive, non-increasing dosage that an orthodox medication is able to give pain relief and not cause additional problems. Which is obviously prescribed. It's yes. A GP, it's yeah. a G it, well, it's not only prescribed, it's prescribed through compounding pharmacists because it's not over-the-counter uh, anywhere. Uh, you can get naltrexone and break it into tiny, tiny fragments, but that's not no, recommended no, whatsoever. No, no. But it's in the orthodox mainstream. It's an odd effect of a very low dose of something. And we have that experience with the old amitriptyline, that high dose was antidepressant and anti-allergy, mm. and low dose is pain relieving. There's something way more subtle about pain than we actually anticipate. Mm. We think of pain as you've got to give heavy hitting drugs. Yeah, yeah. But at the simplest level, there's something about turning off the person's response to pain, which can happen at a level which is down there around the narcotic receptors, but is not the same as giving narcotics. And I think that's a, an area of exploration that if we stop thinking of bigger doses equals more pain relief, in fact, when it comes to the whole narcotic thing, switching off the response to those you know, uh, endorphin or narcotic receptors may be much more the goal. Well, if you, th if you think about the pain gate theory, and yeah. if it, let's say it's a, a C fiber, all you need to do is open that gate. You don't need to open it wide. Yeah. And that breaks the circuit. Yeah, and, and if that stands, and it's a what theory. many notice, what many many notice is, if you're involved in conversation, if you're involved in distraction, if there is something interesting yeah. going on, yeah. it's amazing how even the most extraordinarily severe and debilitating pain can disappear. And so, you, what you can't do yeah. is you can't talk all night to your partner. It no. will drive everybody. But you mad. just reminded me actually of a young boy in when I did my ped um, section of nursing. He was on the maximal dose of, of pethidine back in those yeah. days, broken leg, and still in pain, crying. And so what we did, we moved his bed to the Pac-Man. Yes, that's how old I am. Yeah. Um, we moved his bed so that he was cl the closest to the Pac-Man. He could play the Pac-Man. Pain gone. Yeah. Amazing. Um, I just wanted to point out for our listeners that I will be putting up um, the stewed apple recipe from Mike Ash. Yes. And it is is this the perfect functional meal for mucosal tolerance? 
So look for that on the FX Medicine website. It's we'll not the sum total of what you do for the no, gut, but no, it is such a good start for 90% of people. Yeah. I occasionally have the person saying, those apples nearly killed me. Um, I am not averse to listening to that, but compared to the number of people whose gut problems is ba basically solved very simply, that's a reversal of the normal hit rate that I had. I was going to ask, um, you mentioned about knocking off the microbiota by multiple courses of antibiotics. Years ago, I remember reading a medical paper talking about, you know, we keep on blaming bacteria for middle ear infections, but what about fungal infections? Mm. May not be 100% of the time, but it seems to be oh. a, a sort of an emerging issue. Um, are, we necess are we perhaps creating those or a greater yeah. propensity for fungal ear infections because we're knocking off the bacteria? My question there is, have you ever used things like, um, uh, you know, Escherichia coli, Nissel 1917, Mutaflor? Have you ever used that? I remember there was a there was I something. Have, I have used that in the past. So I've I've got to admit I didn't find it very effective in the people that I was seeing. And, right, you know, okay. Tom Barodi and others have kind of done the fecal matter transplants yep. and talked about the E. coli and their effects on this. Mm. You need competitors to fungi. And one thing that I am very grateful to is uh, Richie Shoemaker. And coming out here a year and a half or two years ago, Richie Shoemaker's whole thing of who's reactive to yeast, who's reactive to fungi. Yep. The people who have antibiotics who've got natural inflammatory responses to fungi, you do see that the antibiotics result in an overgrowth of fungi, not super overgrowth, but enough to trigger that you know inflammatory response. And you have to be really careful. A lot of the people who have the antibiotics, it's in fact the inflammation to yeast and fungi right. that becomes their problem from that time on. Last one, zinc. Yeah, very important. And most of the people that I see, when, we, when I do do zinc and copper, the zinc is low relative to copper. And so you have many interpretations of this. You know, is this pyroluria? Is this some other thing? And so whether it's methylation pyroluria or just chronic low-grade inflammation, zinc seems to be used up very rapidly. And I am extraordinarily amazed at how often people go on zinc supplements, 50, 100 milligrams a day, and never change that ratio. And so the ratio of copper to zinc should be, you know, about even at the very least. What you don't want is copper two to three times higher than your zinc and sitting around there at high levels all that time. So I do give zinc supplements, but there I still know there's something wrong with the way that zinc is being transported. And I've never really got my mind around it. I just keep on saying, keep on taking it. Eventually you'll fill the tanks and we will see the overflow into the blood. And do you use foods like, you know, oysters are a supplement? Very expensive and, and probably not um, inviting to a lot of people, you know. Yeah, um, but then them. you've got things like pecan nuts, pepitas, where you can get at least a daily thing yeah. and you can, you, can, you can graze on these things yeah. and they're healthy foods. I'm the, becoming the pecans, much more a fan of, you know, the foods. The supplements are used where you cannot get the diet right for whatever reason. Sometimes mm. it's personal preference. The person won't do it. Mm. And so you use the supplements to force the issue along in a particular way. But I think what we're getting clear on is most people do better eating food. You know, eat food, not too much, mainly plants. Mm. The really simple seven words. And that really makes a difference to health. When people say, I have to eat what I can grab whenever I can grab it because I'm busy and I've got to do this and yep. I'm not changing, then I think there is a powerful place for supplementation. And I do think that that's where if I could get people to snack on pepitas all day, 
they've got little pepitas in their teeth. Maybe not all that great for look, you know, the look <laughs> Photo- around the Photographic place. opportunities. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's always good to do it. Mm. And what I do find is when people find their own paths of things they can buy and munch on and they get motivated, that they do much better than being given a pill or being told you must take this for the rest of your life. I look forward to the Dr. Mark Donahoe recipe of stewed apple and pepitas. Stewed apple and pepitas, <laughs> yes, I, I know. Well, stewed apple and oysters is going to be the real trouble. Yeah. So you've taken us through in the first podcast of this, you know, the, the, the causes and the issues regarding infections of EBV, mm. what, what its symptomatology is, how it presents. And today we've covered some of the things in which we can practically implement to do um, to help these people recover from that. Obviously looking at the host mechanism, the, you know, yes. the, the host wellness um, with relevant judicious testing of certain yeah. things. I, I think that's an unexplored area. I think we can do a lot more with that because one of my issues is how much do we test and how much do we waste money, yeah. which we could otherwise just treat. If you test enough, you will always find things wrong. Mm. Everybody has got broken bits mm. everywhere. Yeah. It's irrelevant to most people most of the time. But I think if there was a take-home message, it is Epstein-Barr is an initiator of fatigue syndromes and it's a very powerful promoter of it as time goes by but it's not the target of our therapy. We use it as almost the barometer of recovery that we say, why did you get that? Why did the virus get away from you? And answering that provides very doable solutions. When you line those up, more than half of the people will recover. They'll still say, I'm always on the edge of it a bit. But if at the end you have not got that recovery, what are the things you do for pain relief? What are the interventions that you can do that might make a difference? So those things like probiotics, magnesium, the zinc, the even for doctors, low-dose naltrexone, those kind of things are very valuable to have in your toolbox. But I think the long term is you pay attention to the Epstein-Barr because it tells you when the host is unwell yeah. in a very, very direct way for those people who suffer these illnesses. So EBV is a barometer rather than the agent to kill. Yeah. Mm. yeah. It'd be nice if we could kill it. Oh, you know, you don't want your enemies. Would it? Well, I wonder. In a, yes. Philosophically, <laughs> we could get into another hour here. <laughs> don't kill the enemies. You know, keep your enemies, keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer. Yeah. The Epstein-Barr does transform people that when they recover, they discover ways that they recover that they pass on to their family and others, and there is a story to it, and it is a beautiful story. This virus has got a terrific history. But if we focus it all on the virus, we've made the mistake of doing what doctors do. We see the disease Mm. agent in Pasteurian terms, and that's not the way to go about it. I think we need to evolve this thing about pathogen, and and sometimes I get that there are definite pathogens. I get it. But... I, th- I feel that a lot of time we really need to relook at that term and change the, what we name what we're naming these things to perhaps symbionts yeah. that you give it the wrong, if you like, the wrong terrain, and it will try and attack you. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, it will just sit there and just do some things, and that may actually be good for you. In evolutionary terms, a lot of these bugs have invested heavily in mm. us. They keep us behaving in certain ways, passing on things, giving birth. They have a vested interest in us being healthy humans. The occasional one comes along that wants to take over. It's our battle against that thing, Mm. which is the thing that damages Mm. us. That's the thing to remember. Many of the pathogens are just bad news as far as immunology goes. And some people react terribly and others don't. So I do think you're right. We need to think helicobacters. We need to think a whole different Mm. way (laughs) that there are bugs that we have regarded as our enemy, which thought of a different way in a healthy host 
are in fact beneficial. Think of the parasites that, and the worms that may, you know, make a difference to celiac disease and even asthma and allergies. Mm. So we're in a world which is transforming. I said that I would love a gun to shoot the virus when it's on its deathbed. It'll never kill the virus. This is a virus that's made it through everything that mm. we can throw at it. Mm. So learning to live with it and learning its cycle and adapting to it ourselves has got its value. I'm going to put a few papers, as I said, up on the FX Medicine website. So practitioners, when you're listening to this podcast, please let us know, A, I guess, if it's helped you, um, but B, what other sort of uh, clinical tools you'd like us to put up on the FX Medicine website that will be of help to you in your practice. So Dr. Mark Donohoe, thank you once again for taking us through what you can do to support patients who present with Epstein-Barr virus EBV. It's been my pleasure. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Mm-hmm.